Welcome to the North Main Podcast, a production of North Main Street Church of God in Butler, Pennsylvania. This podcast brings you North Main's messages every week. We strive to know God intimately, grow in Christ continually, and go for Him daily. I invite you to listen in today as we explore the Bible and learn about its unchanging truths for living life God's way. Let's listen in to this week's message. So we've been going through a series this month on family di- entitled Family Dynamics, where we've been looking at dysfunctional families of the Bible. And uh, as we've stated, every family has a level of dysfunction. We all have a crazy uncle or aunt. We all have uh, problems and issues. Why is that? Because all of us are, have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And not every one of us have family members who are believers in Christ and we do have some that are believers in Christ, but are more pharisaical, maybe even, in that regard. Or maybe they're believers in Christ by name only, and their lives and actions don't really live that out. Whatever the circumstance or situation in your own family dynamics, my guess is you have stories to tell. It's not any different from the stories of the families of the Bible. And I guess one of the reasons I wanted to do this series way back in the spring, early summer, when we really changed our theme and our series for this month, I'm not going to tell you what it was originally because it's not necessary, but when we decided to look at families and marriages and all of that, we, we decided to look at the dysfunctional families of the Bible, not for the purpose of looking at how bad they were, but of reminding us that God can take what is broken and dysfunctional and doesn't line up and still make something beautiful out of it. And so today we look at the story of David. David, King David of the Old Testament, the man after God's own heart, we are told, in the Old and the New Testaments. Was David perfect? Was David always good? Did he always do the right thing at the right time no matter what? We often focus on how honorable David was and that he wouldn't kill King Saul while King Saul still sat on the throne in Israel. He wouldn't touch God's anointed king even though he himself had been anointed king by Samuel as well. And though he may have had the right to ascend the throne, he wouldn't take take it by might. He would allow God to work and move in a way to orchestrate when and how he ascended the throne of Israel. But it's interesting. This King David, this mighty king, the giant slayer, was also a man who had a wandering eye, prone to temptation, David would make a huge mess of things. David didn't just have one wife, as was customary of the day, especially for royalty or aristocracy. You would have multiple wives because it showed what kind of power and authority you had. And so David had, we know, recorded in 1st, 2nd Samuel and in 1st Chronicles, at least eight wives, but there were more than that because it was only customary to record in the lineage or genealogies those who had bore sons 
He had many concubines. We read about that in 2 Samuel. We don't know their names. We don't know what children they bore to David, but we know he had multiple wives. Now, we know his son, Solomon, eventually had a bunch more than he ever had, but that's a different story for a different time. Suffice it to say, David, though being a man after God's own heart, didn't do everything in alignment with God's purposes. So how can that be? We're going to break that down today and really look at this. We're going to look at the decisions that David made at times and the consequences and the ripple effects of dysfunction that that had on his family. And so the key point this morning is this. Selfishness within families breeds dysfunction, which leads to betrayal. How many of you would say you have at one time or another been selfish? It's okay. Hi, I'm Brandon. I'm a selfish person, right? It's okay to admit that. If you've ever desired to have something that somebody else has had, yes, that's jealousy and envy. Or if you've ever decided, or if you've ever had something that somebody else didn't have, and they say, Can I have a piece? And you're like, No. It's like my kids with my food. And you can tell I don't go without a meal. But it's like our youngest daughter. She's not in here, so I can throw her under the bus. Um, Every time, Sarah Lee could attest to this. Everybody else has a different dish on the table at dinner time if we go out to eat. And her eyes are like, ooh, I'm going to try that, I'm going to try that. But you've got your own food. No, leave my plate alone. You little scavenger. She's like one of those vultures that just sweeps in and takes a piece of this and a piece of that. And then she doesn't eat her food. Guess who ends up eating her food? Right, the trash compactor. So, yes, I have been selfish, but for good reason, right? So we could justify our selfishness, right? I contend that the root of all sin is born out of the seed of selfishness. I've tried to test that for years. Is there any sin that isn't birthed out of selfishness? And I haven't found one yet. Maybe you could tell me of a different one. That's fine. I would love to hear it. But every sin has a self-centered approach. Whether it's a sexual sin and me fulfilling whatever sexual desires come my way. Or maybe it's, it's a feeling of hatred towards somebody. Where is murder birthed? In a selfish action. And you may justify your hatred and anger toward another person, but does it make it good? No, it doesn't. I mean, there's selfishness abounding in countless stories of Scripture and God working with and through and in spite of people's selfish ambitions and selfish natures, David being one of those. David now, at the story where we're getting ready to come into, has come into position of power as king. Saul has died on the battlefield. Jonathan, his son, has died on the battlefield. And now David, finally, after about 11 years having been anointed king, is able to ascend the throne. And he does so with grace and humility. And he begins to lead the people, not just with power and might, but with humility. 
But after being in that position of kingly authority for a season, as many of us do in our own professions when we've been there long enough, we say, I've earned the right to take a break. It's time for somebody else to step in. I'm going to go away and do my own thing now. And so the first point today is that David's selfishness during this point in his life drove him to take what was not his. It says in 2 Samuel, starting with verse, uh, 2 Samuel 11, starting with verse 1, listen to this. In spring of the year, when kings normally went out to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. So what does the king normally do? He rules. He rules from his throne. He rules and makes sure that the laws of the nation are held intact. He upholds those laws. And he makes sure that the people are protected. Kings have a national defense. And they make sure that that national defense has a trained warrior base so that it keeps the borderland secure. And it keeps the people secure from within from domestic issues. And so David now, he's raised up an army. He's got solid commanders like Joab. And when normally the kings would go out to war, because in the wintertime it was too cold, the ground was hard, it was more brutal, they wouldn't do much in the wintertime. Yes, they would take break from warring against each other during the winter. In the spring... When people were getting up, getting their chariots ready, training to go out to battle, these offensive nations would come and press in on the borders, trying to overthrow the kingdom of Israel. So David, he says, I think they got this. I mean, yeah, I'm the the commander in chief, but I'll give it to my second in command. He can take care of this. I mean, I, I, deserve, I need a sabbatical. I deserve a break. So they destroyed, it says, the Ammonite army and laid siege to the city of Rabbah. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. Verse 2. Late one afternoon. Oh, I love the way this starts. Late one afternoon. What's going to happen? After his midday rest, I think, guys, I'm going to go take a little hiatus, a little siesta. So after his midday rest, he gets out of bed, was walking on the roof of the palace, stretching, you know. Somebody's yawning, I saw you. Anyway, so no, I'm just teasing you. Uh, and he's stretching because you're thinking, oh, midday rest would be good about now. I could do this during his sermon like I do every week. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> That's not funny. All right. Anyway, you're stretching. He's stretching. He's getting out. Woo! Got to take, oh, it's a... Midday, sun's out, stretching, and he looks out, because typically the king's palace was the highest, one of the highest points in the city, so he had a vantage point to look out over the kingdom. As he looked out over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. Rooftops in cities like that, especially in Jerusalem and some of the ancient cities, were flat. They were considered more of a porch 
And you could sleep up there at night if you wanted to. It was a place to kind of do your wash or your laundry and hang things out to dry. It was a common area to do different things in. And yes, you could take baths on top of your roofs. Because most people would be looking from down below up and you couldn't see on the roof. But here's the king from a vantage point that most people didn't have looking down over the city. And he sees a woman pretty close to the palace in a home on the roof taking a bath. Says she was really beautiful. So he sent someone to find out who she was. And he was told she's Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Do you catch that? There's something significant in what his servant, who came back to give him the information, told him. She's taken. Do you catch that? He could have said she's Bathsheba, the daughter of so-and-so. But he made sure that David knew that he's not going to get himself in trouble because she's a married woman. He knew what David was sending him for. Go check her out. Find out who she is. I could take her among my harem. She could maybe be a concubine or another wife of mine. She's beautiful. So what does David do? David sent messengers to get her. (laughs) Imagine being one of those messengers to do the king's bidding. She had just completed the purification rites after having her menstrual period. I didn't make this stuff up. It's in there. And in the Jewish culture, a woman would actually have to go outside the city when she was on her menstrual cycle because she was considered unclean. And so she would go outside the city walls, would go through the cycle, and then once she was finished, she would come back in and go through a ritual purification so that she could be considered clean again. And so now she's back home, she's going through the ritual cleansing process as a Uh, as is given by the law of Moses. And David knows that she is now not unclean, so at least he's not going to break that law. And what's he do next? He sent messengers to get her. And when she came to the palace, he slept with her. This doesn't mean they had uh, a, a sleepover, okay? It doesn't mean they had a slumber party. And roasted marshmallows over a fire pit and had s'mores. This meant they slept together, literally and figuratively. She had just completed that, and he slept with her. Then she returned home. Okay, so he did what he wanted. He was all good. She went back home. Nobody's none the wiser except for he and her and the servants that went to get her. But it says in verse 5, later when Bathsheba discovered that she was pregnant, (laughs) you know there's an interesting thing that happens when you sleep with somebody. You could possibly get pregnant. Did you know that? I don't know if you knew, I don't know if David knew this. I mean, maybe Jesse, his father, never told him the birds and the bees. I mean, how does this work? So she discovered she was pregnant. She sent David a message saying, what? I'm pregnant. 
<laughs> do you need to say anything more? Hey, do you remember that wonderful night we had not too long ago? I mean, the, the roses smelled beautiful, and the wine that you had was great. And oh my goodness, the fragrances in that room were... No, she just sends him a note. I'm pregnant. There's no other need for softening the blow because the reality has now become full present in the situation. Holy shoot. Something's just happened. So David sent word to Joab, his commanding officer on the front lines of battle. You remember where David was supposed to be in the first place, where the kings go out to war. He said, I'm just going to stay behind this time, and I'm going to sleep with as many women as possible. No, that's not what he said, but he did. Slept with, he slept with Bathsheba. She got pregnant, and so now he's in a bit of a quandary. What's he going to do? Send me Uriah, Uriah the Hittite, he says to his commanding officer. So Joab sent him to David. Joab has no clue why he wants to see Uriah the Hittite. Uriah's just an infantryman. He doesn't hold a commanding office. He's just a frontline guy. Why does he? And I'm sure Joab's like, oh, I'm not going to question the king. Sure, I'll go ahead and send him. But my guess is Joab's like, why would he want Uriah? So when Uriah arrived, David asked him how Joab and the army were, how they were getting along, and how the war was progressing. So, hey, Uriah, how's it going? Small talk, right? <laughs> hey, I slept with your wife. She's pregnant. No, he doesn't say that. He says, so tell me how the war's going. We doing good? My man, pound it, boom. We good? How's Joab? Hey, why didn't you just send for Joab? And he could have put his next commanding officer in charge. I mean, then Uriah told him. Uh, then then he, he got all that information. Verse 8, he t then he told Uriah, why don't you go, hey, buddy, you've had it hard. Why don't you go on home and relax? Would you be suspicious if this is not the normal behavior of the king? You are a lowly peon in the army. You, of all the others, have been selected to come home. You have somehow gained favor in the king's eyes. You just won the lottery. And he says, hey, you've been fighting hard. Why don't you go on home? You know what I mean. That's what he's saying. Go on home. Sleep. Be with your wife. And then what does he do? David sends a gift to Uriah after he had left the palace. <laughs> He's trying to sweeten it. Hey, buddy, I love you. You're doing good work out there. Here's a gift. But Uriah didn't go home. Huh. I mean, if I'd been away from my wife and family for so long, I mean, I'd be missing my family. But Uriah didn't go home. He slept that night at the palace entrance with the king's palace guard. So he slept with the servants of the king in the entrance of the palace. When David heard that Uriah had not gone home, he summoned him and asked, what's the matter? Why didn't you go home last night after being away for so long? Hey, buddy, I gave, I'm giving you... I'm giving you an opportunity. Go, go, go home and be with your wife. You don't have to sleep at the palace guards. Just, just go on and do that. And Uriah replied, now listen to the wisdom in Uriah, a lowly infantryman, 
to the king of a nation, a man after God's own heart. The ark and the armies of Israel and Judah are living in tents, and Joab and my master's men are camping in open fields. How could I go home to wine and dine and sleep with my wife? I swear that I would never do such a thing. It was common in that day and age, in that ancient time in Israel, that when men went out to war, as the warriors of God, they would abstain from all sexual activity so that they could remain pure and holy for God. It's not that sexual activity made you impure, but they held to such an integrity of doing God's work that during this time and this season, when they were out fighting the battles on the frontiers and the borderlands, that they would not do anything that would deter or distract them from God's duty on their lives. Who had more integrity in this situation? And it's as if Uriah is saying, you know this, right? I mean, it's it's like, but king, the Ark of the Covenant that holds the Ten Commandments and the rod of Aaron that budded with almonds in that jar of manna, you remember that thing that Moses made and the priests would carry around? And that they would win the battles that they fought. It's out in a tent. It's not in the temple or in the tabernacle. And and your men are sleeping in the fields. I don't deserve to come home and do this when the other men are out there. If you've been in the military among the ranks, you probably have some idea of what it means to be among a band of brothers and sisters. Verse 12, David says, well, stay here today, and tomorrow you may return to the army. So Uriah stayed in Jerusalem that day and the next, and then David invited him to dinner and got him drunk. This was not just grape juice, by the way. Got him drunk. But even he couldn't get Uriah to go home to his wife. You know, when you get people drunk, or when you get drunk, you just throw caution to the wind. You may be a silly drunk, a sleepy drunk. I'm not advocating drunkenness. Please understand. Don't leave here saying, Brandon's talking about getting drunk. It happened in Scripture. I'm just relaying the message. He got him drunk, but even in getting him drunk, he couldn't get Uriah who is so inebriated, staggering around to go home and slurred speech and sleep with his wife. Biblical scholar Walter Brueggemann, his take on this passage reads like this. David has been resting on his couch. He is at leisure and he saw that he wanted a woman who was very beautiful. We don't know her name, at least at that point in the story. He's just saying, wow, she looks good. I want her. He's objectifying this woman. David asks her name, but he doesn't measure the cost of his desire. He gets her name. Her name is dangerously hyphenated, Bathsheba, dash, the daughter of Eliam, dash, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. So he has no 
She has no existence of her own, but is identified by the man with whom, men with whom she belongs. Now David knows who she is and whose she is. Not that she's property, but she is connected with other men. David doesn't pause, however, because he is the king. The mention of Uriah might have given David pause, but it does not. David acts swiftly as he has always done. He is not a pensive or brooding man, but one who will have his way and do what he thinks is right. The action is quick. The verbs rush as the passion of David rushed. He sent, he took, he lay, verse 4. Do you catch that? He sent, he took, and he lay with her. Swift action. The royal deed of self-indulgence does not take very long. There is no adornment to the action. It's a one-night stand. And that's all it was ever meant to be. There's no hint of caring. There's no hint of affection, of love. Only lust at its base and root instinct. David does not call her by name, does not even speak to her, and at the end of the encounter, she is only the woman. If you read in verse 5 of the New Living Testament, it says Bathsheba, but if you actually look at the Hebrew, it says the woman. She is nothing but an object to him. The verb that finally counts is the word conceived. I have conceived. I am pregnant. But the telling verb is he took her. Long ago, Samuel warned that kings are takers. If you go all the way back into 1 Samuel chapter 8, they had judges that ruled the land. Samuel was the judge and also a prophet at the time of the nation of Israel. And the people of Israel at that time who had no king started looking at all the other nations around them and they had kings. And they wanted Samuel to go before God and say, we want a king, anoint for us a king like all the other nations had. And Samuel's not okay with this. And God technically is not okay with this, but what does God tell Samuel? They aren't rejecting you, they're rejecting me because I'm their king. They want some earthly king. So tell them, go ahead, anoint a king. But here's the deal. That king, he will lord over you. He will take your sons and daughters and put them into service and slavery and onto the battlefields. He will take what is not his from you. He will take your vineyards, your land. He will commandeer them for his purposes. Just keep that in mind. If you want a king, you can have a king, but this is what's going to happen. And so now flash forward after Samuel, who is the first king anointed over Israel, and then you have David. David is the correction to the mistake of Saul, but David is also prone to sin. And he gives in to his baser instincts by selfishly taking what's not his. David has not had to take up to this point because he was living in the will of God. God was blessing him hand over fist 
And then in this moment of, of, of where everything is going good for David, isn't this how it happens in our own lives? Things are going good. We're on top of the world. We're on cloud nine. And, and we think, I've earned this. And we get a little cocky. Do you ever do that? I've earned this vacation. I've earned that bonus. I've earned the right to fill in the blank. And where does the focus go? Here. Were we ever created to fulfill our every desire? No. We were created to fill his every desire. And when we focus inward to fulfill our own desires, we often get the curse of what those desires lead us to because they're not or rarely are ever in alignment with God's will. We can convince ourselves they are. We can convince ourselves that our desires are innocuous. If they don't hurt anybody else, then what's the big deal? The problem is you don't realize that you are not just an individual. You are a part of multiple different communities. And what you do by selfish nature, whether it's a big ripple or a little ripple, has an effect on your immediate surroundings and in the communities in which you live. We were not created to be alone and to make decisions in a vacuum. Go all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2. It is not good for man to be alone. We were created in community, and it's in community which we thrive, but we don't thrive in community when we're lording over or selfishly trying to take what is not ours and what was never meant to be ours in the first place. Jesus says something similar to these things. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. What things? The things of heaven, not the things of your own desires. Because if you're seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, what do you think your desires are going to be for? Not about you, but about him. And so he implants his desires in us when we seek him first so that his desires become our desires because we desire to please him. David should have been on the front lines with the men who were protecting the kingdom, who were warriors of God. But he wasn't. The second thing we learn is that David's selfishness drove him to great heights of deception in order to cover up his sin. 2 Samuel 11, 14 through 27. So the next morning, this is after he'd gotten Uriah drunk, and Uriah still slept with the palace guards in the entrance of the palace. He wouldn't go home and sleep with his wife, so David had no other alternative, or did he? Have you ever been faced with a decision to either come clean, confess your sin, and look the fool that you are for what you've done wrong? Or do you go the route of saying, I didn't do anything wrong. 
It wasn't me. And you cover up with another lie, another deception. And you cover that one up with another lie, another deception. And then you've got this huge snowball of lies and deception that eventually, as this thing is rolling down the hill, truth spins out of it. Because you can't cover it up enough. Be sure your sin will find you out. So the next morning, David wrote a letter to Joab, his commanding officer, and gave it to Uriah to deliver. The letter, get this, the letter instructed Joab, it says this, quote, station Uriah on the front lines where the battle is fiercest, then pull back so that he will be killed. That's all it says. What did Uriah do wrong to receive such treatment? Well, it's not my fault if you get offended by what I just said. It's not my fault you get offended by my actions. That's on you. Right? You need to take ownership. I need to take ownership for my actions and the way I treat people, by the things I say, the careless words that slip out of my mouth. And yes, sometimes the words that slip out of my mouth may be offensive, but if I'm in the proper place where God has placed me, They can be words of healthy rebuke. But if I'm in my own flesh and my own spirit rebuking, guess what happens? I tear people apart and destroy them from the inside out. David didn't know what to do, or did he? He takes the path of least resistance, or so he thinks, and he writes this letter to his commanding officer, and he says, hey, you know Uriah, the one you sent back to me. Yeah, here's a funny story. Put him on the front lines of battle. And not just on the edges. You know, where it's the most intense. And then when you're, you're properly lined up, have everybody else draw back. And then let him get killed. So uh, Elise, Ian, come here for a minute. And Christy, come here for a minute. Yeah, you're going to like this. This is fun. Let's stand in a line. Okay, all across here. And so, have you ever played this? Like, uh, step forward, those of you that would like to volunteer. Ian, you stay put. You and I, we'll that's what happens, right? But see, he's not the one. Everybody else is in on this except Uriah, right? And everybody at the right time, they go, whoop, boop, 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 boop. And Uriah, it's like, whoa. He doesn't realize until everybody's gone that he's right there. That's what the king's, thank you guys, you're great. That's what the king's orders were. I wanted to give you a visual of that because we've done those things before, right? And so there, the order's given. So Joab assigned Uriah to a spot close to the city wall where he knew the enemy's strongest men were fighting. Not Israel's strongest men, but the enemy's strongest men. And when the enemy soldiers came out of the city to fight, Uriah the Hittite was killed along with several other Israelite officers. Joab didn't fulfill what he was told to do because he knew his reputation was on the line too. And though he's obeying the king's orders, he's obeying them the way he wants to because he can't do what the king is expecting him to do without it looking bad on him with the other officers. So he didn't tell the other officers, hey, draw back. That was the one piece of information he didn't give them. 
so that a whole slew of them died. One man's selfish behavior has a ripple effect on others. Then Joab sent a battle report to David. He told its messengers, report all the news of the battle to the king, but he might get angry and ask, why did the troops go so close to the city? Because here's the thing, Joab didn't follow the rules, remember? And David's going to be peeved because some of his strongest men, his officers, were with Uriah at the battle front where the battle was the strongest, and he didn't tell them to pull back. So Joab already knows the king is going to not be happy about losing some of his strongest men. He might get angry and ask, why did the troops go so close to the city? Didn't they know there would be shooting from the walls? I mean, this is common sense. Wasn't Abimelech, the son of Gideon, killed at Thebes, or Thebes by a woman who threw a millstone down from the city wall? Why would you get so close to the wall? And then when he starts asking that, tell him this. Uriah the Hittite was killed too. Oh, okay, never mind. So here's what happens. Verse 22, the messenger went to Jerusalem, gave a complete report to David. Then the enemy came out. He says, the enemy came out against us in the fields, he said. And as we chased them back to the city gate, the archers on the wall shot arrows at us. And some of the king's men were killed, including Uriah the Hittite. So before David could even argue, why did you send all the men? Uriah the Hittite was put in there. He was, he was killed too. And that's really all that David wanted to know. In verse 25, well, tell Joab not to be discouraged, David said. The sword devours this one today and that one tomorrow. Fight harder next time and conquer the city. What is David's view of the sanctity of life at this point? When we become selfish, what do we think of other people? We rarely think of other people when we become selfish, and if we do, we think they don't deserve what we deserve often. Think of your enemies. Think of those that you have disagreements with. Think of those that you get frustrated with who are thriving that you don't believe deserve to thrive, but you do. You ever felt that way? Think of how you feel toward God when it seems that the wicked prosper and the godly fall. Brandon, you're going to answer that, right? See, we're told that God's ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And we try to plumb the depths of the thoughts of God. We can't even get near the scratch of a surface to figure out all the time. But God has given us enough of his nature to know that he is good and he is love. And that when things happen we don't understand, we are afforded the opportunity to trust in what we cannot see. Because he is good and trusting and faithful. But our selfish nature says, no, I will not trust what I do not see. I will not trust what you do not understand. 
And yet many of us trust in things we don't understand on a regular basis without even batting an eye. How many of you, and some of you know this, how many of you know how to change the brakes and the brake lines and the calipers on a vehicle? Raise your hand. The rest of you, how many of you put trust in the brakes that you push, not knowing how they work or how they're constructed? Yeah? Those ardent atheists who will not trust in a God will trust in the systems of their vehicle to get them from point A to point B flawlessly and to stop at every stoplight or to slam on the brakes before you hit something. Do you understand what I'm getting at? Brueggemann writes with regard to the news of Uriah's death, David exhales this slow relief. <sighs> okay, Okay, that's taken care of. I don't, have to, uh, I, I don't have to worry about this now. When Uriah's wife, verse 26 of chapter 11, when Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. I often wonder if she mourned of true sadness. I would think she did. I would think that their marriage though maybe dysfunctional because all of ours are at some degree, I'm assuming she loved her husband. And she legitimately mourned for him. And when the period of mourning was over, David sent for her and brought her to the palace and she became one of his wives. She gave birth to a son, but the Lord was displeased with what David had done. That's putting it mildly. David's response in verse 25, his word back to Joab, is wondrously cynical. Indeed, David's grown visibly more cynical as the narrative advances. David instructs the messenger to say to Joab, don't let this, evil th- this thing be evil in your eyes. If you look at the Hebrew, it says, don't let this thing be evil in your eyes. Because Joab is fully in on what's going on here. He may not know that David has slept with Uriah's wife and she's become pregnant. He's committed adultery. But he knows that what David is asking him to do is beyond any military schematic and any, anything that would be normal in this situation. So he knows that David has something out for Uriah, but he doesn't know what it is. So Joab is now an accomplice in David's, David's scheme. And now David is trying to console Joab, who doesn't know the whole story, but knows that he's done something that has killed an innocent man, or at least he believes is innocent, and killed other men in the whole line. And David's saying, hey, buddy, don't worry about it. It's all good. But Joab's conscience, I'm sure, was not so good. David's cynicism reaches its culmination even as the story reaches its culmination. In his fear and anxiety, David has set himself against the whole moral tradition of his own people, the law of God, the thing that made him a man after God's own heart. Formally, he is correct. The Torah is not condemned, does not condemn killing that is necessary to war but it does condemn murder. The Ten Commandments, the word where it says do not kill in the King James Version 
is more aptly translated, do not murder. And those are two different words in the Hebrew language. Murder is this premeditated action of rage and hatred, contempt. Second Samuel chapter 12, verses 10 through 12. Nathan has come onto the scene. Nathan is a prophet of God. And imagine yourself being a prophet coming before one of the most important and powerful men on the face of the earth at the time and confronting him with sin that he's committed. And Nathan is given the task by God to go confront David, who could actually have him beheaded, disemboweled, or whatever he wanted to do. And so Nathan, by the wisdom of God, goes to King David and gives him a parable of a man who had a sheep, a baby lamb, who they raised and it became a pet. It would sleep in their home just like one of your puppies or cats. And they loved that animal. It would even eat from the table with this family. And then Nathan says, but there's a rich guy down the street who has a field of sheep and goats and he has so much money he doesn't even know what to do with it. But he one day wanted to throw a party for all of his buddies. And instead of taking one of his sheep and slaughtering it, he goes to his neighbor who has this one lamb. And he takes it from the house forcefully. He slits his throat and roasts it over a spit so that he could throw a party. David becomes incensed because he doesn't realize it's a parable about him. Who is this guy? He needs to repay that family over and over again. He needs to, he, he should die. You're that guy. <laughs> you think of how much time has elapsed at this point where David thought he has gotten away from, with this. But the one who we think we can hide everything from sees all. And it's him that matters most. <laughs> and through Nathan, God shows him a reflection of his sin. And here's what makes David a man after God's own heart again. Do you know what he does next? He weeps. Because having now been faced face to face with the sin. He'd been on one side of his sin, but now he's seeing a reflection of it from a different vantage point. And he's going, oh no, what have I done? What have I done? Write this in your notes if you don't have it. Psalm 51. This is David's lament in his song of repentance for what he had done to Bathsheba and Uriah and the ripple effect of damage it had caused. I pray this prayer every morning on Sundays before I get up to stand before you. Create within me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Don't cast me away from your presence, O Lord, and don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and renew a right spirit within me. Those just a few verses 
of a whole lament that David writes in response to being caught in his sin. And what we will see is that that instance, among other instances, are what caused David's family to suffer greatly. You move forward in the story, and let me close with this. David has multiple sons from multiple other wives. Later on in the story, in 2 Samuel chapter 13, one of David's sons, the oldest son, Amnon, takes his half-sister Tamar and rapes her. Now, Tamar has a full-blooded brother by the name of Absalom. David becomes incensed by the raping of his daughter Tamar by his son Amnon. Again, this is the stuff that soap operas are made from. But he doesn't do anything about it. And so now Absalom, Tamar's full-blooded brother, becomes so incensed and angry, not at only Amnon, but his father David for not doing anything about it. And so Absalom traps Amnon at one point in time of the story and has him murdered. And because Absalom is not only resentful toward his brother, it says he hates, Ab he hates Amnon so much that he neither thinks good of him or bad of him. Can you imagine not liking somebody so much that you are emotionless as if they are a non-existent person? That is the absolute hatred to completely erase them from your life. That's not what we're called to. But Absalom has this contention with his father that starts as anger. Why haven't you done something about this problem? And so he takes the law in his own hands, kills his brother Amnon, and then gets banished by his father for having done what David should have done about to begin with. And Absalom then spends a few years off in a different city, away from his father and his family. And while he's in exile, his bitterness and resentment grows even stronger. His hatred toward his father is not to the point that it was toward Amnon, but it was so deep that to uproot it would be near to impossible. And so David calls for Absalom to come back on the advice of one of his advisors, but he still won't have any appointment to meet with Absalom at all. And finally, Absalom asks the question, how come you won't have me come see you? I'm really paraphrasing this. Read the story. And so when Absalom comes back into town, because he hates his dad so much and resents his dad, he starts wooing the people of Jerusalem. I know, my dad's a pretty rough guy. He shouldn't do these things. And I know these burdens are hard for you. And, uh, you know, and people started kissing his hands, bowing. No, 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 don't bow down to me. I'm just one of you guys. We're all buddies here. And he starts to woo the people. And in fact, he forms a coup. And the coup actually drives David back out into the wilderness the way he was under Saul. History is now repeating itself because, Saul, because David finds himself, much like Saul, the bad guy in the story. 
And so the destruction ensues. Absalom takes the throne, and guess what he does? See, Nathan had told David, because of what you've done, somebody will ascend the throne and sleep with your wives in public. Do you know what Absalom does? On the advice of one of King David's former advisors, that's now become Absalom's advisor, as David is now out in the wilderness again with his men, 2 Samuel 16, when Absalom returned or turned to Ahithophel and asked him, what should I do next? David's gone. Okay, what? we got the city. What should I do next? And David's faithful advisor, who is now playing politics and become Absalom's advisor because he wants to save his head, says, go and sleep with your father's concubines, for he has left them there to look after the palace. And then all Israel will know that you've insulted your father beyond hope of reconciliation, and then they will throw their support to you. And so, verse 22, they set up a tent on the palace roof. Here's another rooftop story. They set up a tent on the palace roof where everyone in the city could see it. And Absalom went in and had sex with his father's wives. <laughs> yeah, this is, I'm telling you, some of you who think the Bible is so boring, I, I just don't understand you. You, you, you got, if you are really leaning into this, it's not a rated G kind of thing. But here's the cool thing about scriptures, it's true, and it shows how God redeems what is broken in those situations. Let me close with this as our worship team comes forward. According to the legend of one of the saints of old, he was on a journey one day, and he met up with two other travelers along the road. One of them was really greedy. And the other one was a very envious man. And when they were parting ways, as they traveled down the road some time, when they were parting ways, the old man who was the saint said that he would grant them both a wish. And the first one to make the wish would get whatever he asked for, but the second one would get double what the first man wished for. So the two men walked on. And even though they both knew what they wanted, each of them was determined not to go first because they wanted double what the first man got. Finally, one of them could stand it no longer, and he grabbed his companion by the throat, and he said, if you don't make your wish right now, I will choke you to death. And the other man coughed and sputtered, <laughs> fine, I'll make my wish. I wish that I was blind in one eye. Immediately, he went blind in one eye, and his companion lost sight in both eyes. Selfishness always blinds us to what is true. It's not the one who ends with the most toys that wins. It's the one who has lost everything for the sake of Christ, but gained his soul. Have you lost your soul today because you've been selfish? Have you acted in ways that are self-destructive, but not only that, are destructive to those around you and in your life? 
You know one of the worst places I see this behavior is at funerals. Can I tell you how much I hate this? I've been in ministry for 23, 24 years now, and every funeral I've done, there's a percentage of those funerals where there are siblings who are fighting over the belongings of their parents or the inheritance, or the will, or any number of things. And you may be rightly justified because your sibling is being unfair. But the reality is, <laughs> selfishness drives us to these base places of sinful responses that destroys the fabric of relationships. What does it profit you if you gain the whole world but lose your soul? Maybe some of you today need to make recompense for the selfish behavior of your past, your present. Maybe you need to apologize. And maybe somebody has been selfish towards you and you are the victim of somebody else's selfish motives like David did toward Bathsheba or Uriah. You can become like Absalom or you can become like Christ who hung on the cross, as I said earlier, and said, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Jesus had every right to be like Absalom and hate every one of us, and justifiably so, because we're all sinners. But those who willingly come to the foot of the cross, kneeling in full surrender to him, are the ones who make it. It doesn't mean that you have to be perfect. It just means that you have to to take that step of humility in his direction. You don't have to come to him cleaned up, but allow him to clean you up as he reveals to you things that are wrong in your life. That's salvation. Our altars are always open, as I say. To my right, you come to this one. You can be prayed for. Somebody will come and pray with you. If you just want to pray alone, come to my left, you're right. If you're at home, kneel wherever you are or wherever you're listening to this message. But maybe this is connected with you in a way. Don't leave here without at least settling things with God. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And we know that we are not perfect, but you are. And that through your son, Jesus Christ, we become perfected saints, not sinners. God, give us a sense of hope through your son, Jesus Christ, if we, as we make the step in humility toward you. And, and that step in humility requires us to leave all selfishness behind. Forgive us where we failed you, where we faltered as a church, as individuals in this place, or those listening online or on TV today. God, I pray that you would just move in such a way as to radically transform us by the power of your Holy Spirit, convicting of us of sin and dwelling within us to clean out the home of our heart. Restore to us the joy of your salvation and renew right spirits within us, O Heavenly Father, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us this week. Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's Word. Make sure to visit us on our website, www.northmaincog.org, where you can learn more about us. If you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes, or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would be helpful too. 
Donating to the ongoing ministry of North Maine is easy. Just go to our website and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. Thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.